going to take a seat here and I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to take a seat because a, uh, some kind of diabolical virus has swept through my family and that's why they're not here. I'm here because I paid to be. And, um, and so I was thinking this morning how frustrated I get when stuff like this happens because I just want to give myself fully to this that I'm about to do and um, I just feel weak. And I was reminded of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 12 about how um, when we're weak, God is strong and that we are just cracked vessels that um, hold great treasure. So I'm going to pray that that great treasure would shine forth despite the cracked vessel that I am, the, the, um, the cracked pot. And, um, and, uh, and so as I pray for you, you can pray for me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this is a church where we love to hear your word read and where we believe that your word changes us. And so we pray now that as we ponder your word, as we wrestle with it, as we ask for it to be spoken into our hearts, that you would make us attentive, that you would make us submissive, that you'd make us more like Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. There's a few things in God's word that I struggle to get my head around. Um, Quite a few things that just I grapple with and I don't think I'm any closer to fully understanding 15 years into being a Christian. And um, I'll share a couple of those with you. The first one... um, first one came to mind as we sang that first song this morning, and I didn't plan for us to sing that, but it's exactly what I grapple with. We, we sang that God placed the stars in the sky. He knows them by name. And in Psalm chapter 8, verse 3, it says that, uh, that that's exactly what God did. He, he, the, the psalmist says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, and he goes on to say, I, "I just can't fathom how you care for human beings. If you've done that, how is it that you care about us, little insects on the face of the planet? And what we know about the universe, just the magnitude, the the, the massive nature of the universe, my I can't get my head around that. That God placed each star." All I can think is that that just shows me how big God is, how magnificent God is. Like if you struggle to come in here and worship God, think about that for five minutes and you shouldn't struggle anymore. Another thing that I find hard to get my head around is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 28. He says, Paul says, we know that in all things... In all things. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And in chapter 8 he talks about how all Christians have been called by God, that we're Christians because he has called us. It's not our own goodness, but his call that's effective in bringing us to faith. And so he says everyone who's been called, everyone who's a Christian, that God is working all things for their good. And for the good of all of those who are loved by God and called by Him. And that's difficult to come to terms with. Like intellectually, I find that very encouraging. I find it incredibly 
um, warming and um, it speaks of God's goodness and his power. He's not just good, he's powerful. He's not just powerful, he's good. And yet that verse crashes up against so many of my experiences in life. How is God working for my good in all situations and circumstances? All things. It crashes up against the, the, the many, many times that I've sat with people from this congregation and wept with them and, and prayed with them after hearing that they have been sexually abused as children. Like, I don't know if you have an idea of how frequently kids are sexually abused, but I have the privilege and the pain of knowing how many of you have been abused. And you are the ones that God has called. And Paul says that God uses all things and works all things and means all things for the good of those who love him. And I don't know how that works out in my own experience. I don't know. i got a picture here of me and my mum a few years before she died. I'm, I'm eight years old when she died. It's like a couple of weeks after my eighth birthday. And this is in 83. This is just after my younger brother was born. And uh, I have this amazing relationship with her, close relationship with her. And then when I'm eight, she dies. She dies of cancer. I don't, I don't know... I don't, I don't know how that works for my good. And I think about the day when we're here on the 31st of July and we're celebrating five people coming to faith and just the incredible day that that was and the fact that the same day in North America, there's this family, a picture of them, this family of five, called the Pals, P-A-L-S, Pals family, and uh, I'm going to bring up that picture, next one along. Um, There's this family, and two parents are 29 years old, and they've got a three-year-old boy, a two-year-old girl, and a two-month-old boy, and they're um, this young family who have given their life to serving Jesus. They're going to Japan in October, and on the 31st of July, they were driving across the state to, um, to have their final training before they go to Japan, going to this incredibly difficult place to do ministry and mission, and they've given themselves to it, they're trained for it, they're gifted in it, and on their way over there, they um, go through a construction area and a truck rear-ends them, and they're all killed. Every one of these, these people are killed. And they're about to go to a mission field that desperately needs to hear the gospel. And they're dead. And I don't know how that works for their good and for the good of God's called people in Japan. And what you just heard read is a story of a young man who is likewise killed. In this case, he's murdered. 
And he's a young guy who is incredibly gifted and who has just been set apart for the work of ministry in the early church, a church that desperately needs him, desperately needs his gifts. And this young man is murdered right when the church needs him most. And I don't know how that works for their good. It's incredible how the story of Stephen mirrors the story of Jesus. I don't know if you picked up on some of those similarities as Simon read that passage for us, but I wrote a few of them down. It's just, it's, it's amazing how Christ-like he is, not only in his character, but in his story. So just like Jesus, you might want to look at this in chapter 6, just like Jesus in verse 8 he, he is performing signs and wonders. Signs that point to the lordship of Jesus. Wonders that come about as a result of being filled with the Spirit. He's doing these things. He's, he's a servant. He's a deacon. But he's also doing signs and he's doing wonders just like Jesus did. And then in verse 9, opposition arises against him. It's the opposition of religious people. Just like in Jesus' case. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, etc., etc. These guys who were meant to be God's people, these guys who memorized the Bible, these guys who represented all that was godly and holy in Israel are the ones who oppose this young man who does signs and wonders in God's name. And in verse 10, just like with Jesus, they can't handle him. They oppose him, but they can't handle him. They could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. Just like Jesus. Just like Jesus, they gather some people to provide false witness against him. Just like Jesus verse 11 to verse 14. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. They stirred people up to produce false witness and false testimony against him, just like Jesus. And just like Jesus, Stephen sees their hearts. Stephen sees them for who they really are. He's filled by the Spirit, and the Spirit gives him the insight to see into the the hearts of these men who oppose him. And he's not just fighting back because they're against him. He's fighting back because he sees their duplicity. He sees their hypocrisy. And so he says to them in verse 51 to 53, He says, you stiff-necked people. That's exactly what God said about the people of Israel as they rejected him and his his messengers. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts. They were all about the fact that they were circumcised. They loved the fact that they'd been circumcised. That made them God's people in their eyes. But he says, your hearts aren't circumcised, and that's what counts. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. exactly what Jesus told them as well. Was there never a prophet? Your fathers did not persecute. Again, what Jesus accused them of, killing the prophets. 
They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus himself. You not only killed Jesus, you killed the men who point towards him. And now you've betrayed and murdered Jesus himself. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Their treachery against God was higher than anyone else's. They knew him or should have known him better than anyone. And yet they have betrayed him and murdered him. Just like Jesus, he tells them exactly how it is. And just like Jesus, they kill him. Verse 54 to 58. When they heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He's seeing in pure reality. He's seeing what would probably overwhelm us to see. The reality of the spiritual realm. He sees their hearts as they are and he sees the reality of God enthroned in heaven. Jesus at the right hand. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Judge, jury, executioner. Just like Jesus, they go about killing him without having the blessing of Rome as they had to have in order to kill someone. They drag him out. It's a fit of rage. They can't stand what he's saying. They hate the gospel. They hate the Messiah who was sent for them. And so they drag him out of the city and stone him. And meanwhile, these false witnesses... These men complicit in the murder of an innocent man lay their cloaks at the feet of a man named Saul. We'll get to him at the end. And just like Jesus, even as they're killing him, he prays. And he prays two prayers that were the same prayers that were on the lips of Jesus. Do you see how Christ-like this man is? He prays these two prayers, that the, the same prayers that were on the lips of Jesus. While they were stoning him, verse 59, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus' own prayer. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Jesus preached, don't hate your enemies, pray for them. And then as he dies at the hands of his enemies, He doesn't hate them. He prays for them. And Stephen, following in Jesus' footsteps, does the same thing. Where there's hypocrisy in those who kill him, there is nothing but but pure and undefiled love in the heart of Stephen, given to him by his Lord, Jesus. Filled with the Spirit, he dies a martyr's death. The first martyr in the history of the church, a servant of God, murdered at the hands of men who should have known God better. And just like Jesus, after he is killed, he is mourned deeply and he's buried. In chapter 8, verse 2, it says that godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Why do they mourn deeply? Because it's a tragedy. This innocent man 
just at the beginning of his ministry in this flourishing church. This man who the the scripture tells us was full of faith, full of grace, full of power, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit is cut down. Of course they're mourning deeply for him. It's a tragedy. What a loss. I don't know how to I don't know how to put that that verse which is one of my favorites and which I believe by faith. I don't know how to put that together with this or with the story of the pals or with the the death of my own mum. I don't know how to reconcile it. it. It blows my mind. How is God going to use this murder? for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, Stephen wants to tell us a little bit about how God does that. And right before he's killed, Stephen preaches this incredible sermon. It takes up all of chapter 7, this incredible sermon which demonstrates just how much he knows about God, about the history of God's people, how much he's filled with the Spirit to be able to recount all of these things that God has done through the years and a common thread that runs throughout what he has to say, a common thread that runs throughout salvation history is just how God overcomes difficult circumstances to bring about his will and purpose. So as we look at what Stephen says, I want you to think about your own life. What are the things in your life that just scream, they, t- they seem to scream as witnesses against the truth of Romans 8.28? What are those things that seem to, to scream down that verse and offer evidence against it? What are the things that cause you to struggle? Perhaps what are the things that just, caught, that, that just produce a bit of ambiguity in your own relationship with God? Like, you just can't resolve this and put a bow on it right now. Think about those things and listen to the things that Stephen lists. Similarly, as things that speak against God's purposes and which he overcomes for his purposes. All right? So, chapter 7. We're going to skip through this pretty quickly, okay? So... So tune in, and, and, and he starts at the beginning. He starts at the beginning of the story of God's people. He starts with Abram, and he talks about how Abram was called by God to be the father of the nation of Israel, a nation that would extend beyond Israel to bless everyone on earth, including you and me. And God tells him that you're not only going to be the father of at this nation, but you're going to inherit a land that you're going to call your own. And when he says that, at this point, his wife is barren and the land is occupied by enemies. All of the evidence speaks against God's plan. All of the evidence speaks against God's purpose. And yet God not only saves his wife from barrenness and gives her children, he, he also 
offers the land up to them as a place for them to occupy. Stephen says this is an example of how God works against what seems to be evidence against his plan to bring about his purposes. Then he moves on. The next step on the chain is to Joseph. In chapter 7, verse 9 to 15, he talks about how Joseph was betrayed by his own brothers. He's sold into slavery in Egypt, ends up in Egypt. And yet out of that situation of hopelessness, of utter betrayal and treachery at the hands of his own brothers, God raises him up to be an influential man in Egypt to the extent that he will save Israel from the famine that would have killed them if he hadn't have been sold into slavery in the first place. This incredible story of God redeeming treachery, of redeeming famine, of redeeming terrible circumstances, personal circumstances, to bring about good for his people, those who have been called according to his purpose. And Joshua is the, is the only one in the situation who gets this. He's the one that's been wronged. He's the one who finds himself in this incredibly hard situation. And yet, in chapter 50 of, of Genesis, at verse 20, he says this. And this gets to the heart of it. Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, You, speaking to his own brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That is a verse that runs from Genesis right through the story of salvation. As God weaves his good purposes out of the devastation and brokenness of this world. We find ourselves in circumstances that are intended to harm us. And yet God intends for them to do us good and to do good to those who are loved by God and called according to his purpose. And then he moves on to the next step in the chain, the next link in the chain of salvation history. He's gone from Abram to Joseph and then he gets to Moses. And Moses has exactly the same story. In verse 17 of chapter 7 through to verse 22, he, he recounts the fact that in Egypt at this time, now that the people have settled there since Joseph's time, the, a new pharaoh comes around and, and this pharaoh doesn't like the Israelites. He doesn't know anything about Joseph and the good standing that Joseph had, and the good name that he wrought for the people of Israel. This pharaoh sees himself as God and he hates the people of Israel. Think Hitler and the Jews, right? This time it's Pharaoh and the Jews. The Jews have a history of this, all right? Ethnic cleansing is the answer in both cases. And so Pharaoh passes a law that all of these Jewish babies need to be killed. Throw them to the crocodiles. Throw them out into the desert. We're getting rid of the Jews. This terrible situation that if you think about it for even five consecutive seconds, makes you sick to think about. Into this, God starts weaving his plan for his people's good purpose. Moses, rather than being killed, is sent down the river by his mother as a last-ditch desperate effort to maybe buy him freedom. And that's exactly what happens. He's picked up 
by the wife of Pharaoh. And as a result of that, Luke tells us through Stephen that he is raised in Pharaoh's court, that he is given an Egyptian education, the best in the world at the time. And as a result of this treachery, as a result of this sickening ethnic cleansing, God's man is raised up through the ranks of the Egyptian court. But even then, it's not just roses for the people of Israel because Moses himself is rejected by his own people. So he goes on, verse 23 to 29, he talks about the next period in Moses' life. Moses, this man who's been educated in Pharaoh's court, now commits murder. He sees one of his own people mistreated by an Egyptian and he kills the Egyptian. He thinks he's doing the right thing. It's, a, it's in a flash of anger, but it's righteous anger, and he thinks that he's saving the life of this man, and then he finds out that his people haven't received it as a gift. They've received it as a threat. And so a man, one of his own people, an Israelite, says, what, are you going to kill me? Just like you killed him? You think you're a judge of us? And so he experiences the rejection of his own people and he flees. He flees to a land called Midian. And again, this is God's hand in his life in response to something that seems like so bad, so sad, the rejection of him by his own people, even as he's trying to serve them. He goes to a place called Midian, the place where he's going to be trained to be the saviour of his people. It's that place, Midian, where he meets God in the burning bush. It's where God speaks to him. It's where God gives him his mission for the latter days of his life to go and save his people out of slavery. And so Moses has these like three periods in his life where it just seems like the worst possible thing. It seems like like, like all of the evidence to speak against God's good plan for his life. And yet each time God turns it just like he did with Joseph, just like he did with Abram, he turns it for good, not just the good of the individual, but the good of his people for his salvation purposes in the world. Through Abram, he establishes the nation. Through Joseph, he saves them from the famine that would kill him, through, kill them. Through Moses, he saves them out of slavery and into this promised land that he promised to Abram. All the while he's weaving his good purposes even when life seems to be working against them. One person said I forget who it was, but he said that like our view of the world and God's purposes in the world it just seems like a mess. It's like looking at the, the reverse side of a, of a of a I don't know what it's called crochet Tapestry. It's just, it's just pieces of thread going everywhere, right? All over the place. Colors mixed up and it just looks like chaos. But God sees the front of the artwork. He sees it in perfect order. He sees the finished product. He sees how all of those chaotic threads are working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And Stephen says that's the history of Israel. That's how God has always worked. 
That's how God takes this broken, painful, suffering, futile world and brings about His good purposes. So yeah, Stephen says that's, that's how God works through Israel's history. But what about Stephen? Like, isn't it ironic that he's talking about God's good purposes in evil and yet he gets killed, murdered as an innocent man? Isn't that just brutal irony? Well, Luke picks up the story. And Luke tells us that actually Stephen's story is just part of God's bigger story. It's just part of the bigger story of God taking what's broken and making it beautiful. So Luke tells us in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Where have you heard that phrase before, Judea and Samaria? It's in 8, verse 1. It's also in 1 verse 8. In 1 verse 8, remember we said this from the beginning, this is like the meta theme of the whole book. Jesus says to his disciples, he says that he, after filling them with the Spirit, is going to take the gospel from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. How does God redeem Stephen's death? How does he How does he take it and and work it for the good of those who love him and call it according to his purpose? He, He uses Stephen's death and the subsequent persecution of his people to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. So 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 listen, if you're a Christian here today, you need to know the reason you're a Christian, one of the reasons, one of the links in the chain that you're a Christian is because Stephen was murdered. That murder set off a persecution which set off the evangelization of the world. There's an old saying that the the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And if you look at the last 2,000 years of history, wherever Christians have suffered and died, the church has grown. Because that's how God works. He takes broken things and makes them beautiful. He takes evil things and works them for his good purpose. So, I don't know. I I don't know how to... I don't know how to put a, a bow on this. And I kind of think that maybe we're not meant to. But the truth is that God uses crooked sticks to make straight lines. And that God, as he always has, takes broken things and makes them beautiful. And it's true that from my perspective, as much as I want to I preach the whole counsel of God for you, I don't see that side of the tapestry. But I trust that God does. 
and I hold in tension the fact that that molestation and cancer and famine break the heart of God and that he's not shocked by any of them and that he uses all things for the good of those who love him and accord according to his purpose. I hold that together. Because the alternative is either a God who could fix all that but just doesn't care about it, or it's a God who sits in heaven and is limited in his power. He's grieving at all of the mess, but he's like, I wish I could help you, but my hands are tied. And neither of those pictures of God makes any sense of the Scriptures. That God, those gods don't exist. They only exist in the minds of people who want to rescue him and who want to rescue us from the tension that he wants us to live in. Wanting to put a bow on it and tie it all up and make us all feel less anxiety about the world. They, they either make God powerful but cold or they make him kind of grieving but weak. And that's not the God of this Bible. The God of this Bible grieves at the state of the world which he created to be good. And he uses all things for the good of those who love him and call according to his purpose. So why do you suffer so much? If God is good, why do we suffer so much? If God is good, then why does Stephen die? If God is good, why does a family of five die? If God is good, why does cancer exist? Why does it even exist? I actually don't know the answer to those questions. What I believe by faith is that God has it all in his hands. And he's turning all of it for our good. You know, there's another question to ask. And the question we've been asking is actually a lot, more, a lot easier or a lot more comfortable to ask than the second question. The first question is, why, how, how does God use my suffering for the good of those he loves? The other question is, how does God use the suffering I cause for the good of those he loves? In one case, I'm the victim. In the other case, I'm the perpetrator. And yes, I've experienced a deal of suffering in my life, but I've also caused a great deal of suffering. Am I alone in that? How does God redeem not only the suffering I experience, but the suffering that I cause? That's a harder question to ask. But in both cases... The answer is that God uses not only the suffering I experience, but the suffering that I cause. Does he approve of it? No. Does he use it? Yes. In this same passage, we're introduced to a young man, it says, named Saul. Verse 58 says, Meanwhile, 
the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He is a young man who has risen up in the ranks of the religious elite in Israel. He's a man who's gifted not only with great intelligence, but with great ambition. All of the great dictators and persecutors of our time have those two qualities. Great intelligence, great ambition, and a will that is ironclad. And this is Saul. And we're introduced to him at this point as the man who oversees the murder of Stephen. And he approves of it. He approves of it, verse 1 of chapter 8. Saul was there giving approval to his death. This death, this murder of a man in a white-hot rage. Just think about this, watching someone being stoned to death. This is not a quick death via guillotine or shot to the head. This is stoning. This is bit by bit having your body destroyed by small hard objects. Beaten to death. Slowly. And Saul stands there smiling. This is good. I approve of this. And he doesn't stop with Stephen. Verse 3 says, Saul began to destroy the church. It's not just Stephen's body that's destroyed. It's the church, the body of Christ, that's destroyed by Saul. He goes from house to house. It just seems like he enjoys it. He does it the slow way. Again, echoes of the persecution of Jews in Germany, house to house, the SS, dragging people away to the gas chamber. He goes from house to house, dragging off men and women, putting them in prison, that is, putting them to death. And he enjoys it. So yeah, maybe God can redeem the suffering I experience, but what about the suffering that I cause? What about the suffering that I perpetrate? What about all of the ways in which I stone people to death in my own way? All of the ways that I drag them off to prison. How's God going to redeem that? Well, once again... We have these archetypes in Scripture, these illustrations of how God does this. And in the life of Saul, we're going to see in the next couple of weeks just how God will redeem the suffering that he causes for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Saul's going to get knocked off his horse. Saul's going to get saved. Saul's going to become Paul. Saul's going to write most of the New Testament. He's going to spend the rest of his life as a missionary. He's going to die because of his faith. And he's going to be the greatest propellant 
to the gospel going to the ends of the earth that as they've ever lived. And he's going to live in the tension for the rest of his life between knowing God's good purposes and knowing all of the ways that he caused suffering. I think it's incredible the detail that Luke records in this, these couple of chapters that we've looked at this morning. The detail. How is it that Luke knew so much? We've seen that he is one of the greatest historians that's ever lived. Secular historians will agree. Secular academics will agree. So he's a great historian. We know that he was inspired by the Spirit to read this. So yes, God could have just dropped a few tablets of stone and said, write this out. You know how I think he he knew so much? I think Paul told him. Remember, Luke travels with Paul, the second half of Acts. We see that. And I think Paul remembers when he was Saul. And I think he remembers presiding over the death of Stephen. And I think he remembers every word that Stephen said. And I think he can see the way that God used his own treachery, his own murderous intent for the good of the church. And I think that's probably what he's thinking of. That's one of the things he's thinking of when he writes Romans 8, verse 28. So take it from him. Take it from someone who not only caused great suffering, but experienced great suffering. Take it from the man who did those things and still wrote that precious verse. God is using all things. He's using our suffering, the the stuff that we experience and the stuff that we perpetrate for our good and the good of those who are called according to his purpose. I'm going to pray for us now. And one of the reasons I'm going to pray is because I just read a passage in which a dying man who is being murdered prays for the people who are killing him And in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to see that prayer being answered. Stephen prays for Saul that God would forgive him. In chapter 9, Saul gets forgiven. So if nothing else, I believe that God hears and answers our prayers. And I'm going to pray for us now. I'm going to pray that that we would be able to live in this tension. Let's pray together. Father, many of us here have experienced horrific things. Some of us have come to this country as refugees who have fled from murder and ethnic cleansing. We've seen the murder of members of our own family. And others of us have experienced tragedy, tragic deaths of loved ones at the hands of cancer and other vile diseases. And some of us have been the victims of sexual abuse at the hands of evil men and women. And all of us 
believe that you're a good God. All-powerful and all-loving. Father in heaven, please help us to live in this tension. The tension of the now and the not yet. You have redeemed us. You are ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. You are sovereign. You are powerful over all things. You weave history for your good purposes. And yet this world is broken. And it grieves you. And it hurts us. And we experience suffering. And we make people suffer. In this now and not yet, in this tension, please help us to trust you. Please grow our trust. Please help us to see your work throughout salvation history. Taking broken things and making them beautiful. Working all things for the good of those who love you. And call it according to your purpose. Taking things that men and women intend for evil and working them for our good. Please help us. We need your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.